0: It is certainly a privilege and a pleasure to be able to bring a lesson to us today. You'll have to give me just a moment to get set up. Normally, I'm a pen and paper kind of guy, but for whatever reason, I decided to go digital today. We'll see how that turns out. If you will open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, we'll use the book of Romans as a jumping off point for today. We're not going to stay in Romans, however. Romans chapter 11. We'll start in verse 22 in the book of Romans. Thumbs up from the audience. Yes? No? Okay. How about that? Okay. Starting in Romans chapter 11, verses 22 is where we'll pick up. This verse states, therefore consider the goodness of And severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. This morning we're going to be talking about the dichotomy of God, specifically the dichotomy of goodness versus severity. We're going to be looking at an Old Testament book. We're going to look at the summary and application of this. This book that we're talking about this morning is a very solemn book. This is a very somber book. This book shows, once again, this dichotomy of God, justice versus wrath, goodness versus severity. Um, this book is most certainly set with eloquent and thoughtful words. If I was in your shoes, I'd be trying to figure out what exactly book we're talking about this morning. This book has five chapters. Each of these chapters is a different poem that was that was written, and they were set together into one book. And this is the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a unique book. If you would have asked me before I started studying, if I could quote a single verse from Lamentations, I would have told you no. Couldn't do it. Um, I thank Reagan for that song that he just led. That would probably be the only thing I could take from Lamentations. Great is thy faithfulness. That's where the, the words for that song comes from. But we're going to look to this morning with um, at Lamentations. Like I said, this book has five chapters. Um, each chapter is a unique poem. It has different tenses, different moods, different subjects of these poems. If you are flipping through the Book of Lamentations, if you're on a digital device, you can look through and click chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5, and you'll see that all of those chapters have 22 verses. The chapter in the middle, chapter 3, chapter 3 has three times that many verses with 66. And this is a very important fact to realize because it's the Book of Lamentations is set about as Jewish poetry. Jewish poetry. So, the uh, fancy word for how this is written is an abecedarian acrostic. Um, you can take with that if you will. And it, what that means is that every verse begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So if we look at verse 1 of the Book of Lamentations, chapter 1, how lonely sits the city, that how is the Hebrew letter, aleph, which is basically our A. She weeps bitterly in the night, this is verse 2, that would be bet, that would be our B. And it goes all the way through. Uh, to the 22nd uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet, being Tav, and uh, chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 are all done that way. Chapter 3 is unique because it's a triplet of verses that do that. Lamentations is a very unique book. Um, I'll tell you some quotes that people have written about Lamentations. Some people say that it is full of grief, sorrow, and destruction. Someone else put it that it is an elegy written in a graveyard. Um, a memorial dirge written on the destruction and humiliation of Jerusalem, and another writer puts it as a cloudburst of grief, a river of tears, and a sea of solace. This is one of those books that once you read it, you might need to probably not read it late at night, you might need to go outside and read this book um, because it is is most certainly gruesome once it tells of um, its accounts of the Hebrew people It is most certainly an elegy. It is most certainly a dirge. um, But I think we can make specific applications to us today with it, and that's what we'll do. A little bit of background about this book, if we're unfamiliar with it. Um, More than likely, it was written by Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah the prophet. It fits his same style and tones. It's in the right time period. Uh, The Septuagint most certainly accounts it by Jeremiah. It's ascribed to Jeremiah. It's placed in the same context in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, alongside Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Esther, um, and Lamentations fits in there. The historical context of this, more than likely we think it was written in um, 586 or 585. That's that's a, a specific date because in 587 to 586 B.C. was the destruction or the siege of Jerusalem by the Neo-Babylonians. And that's really the context of, of Lamentations. It's a, an account of the destruction, and the siege of Jerusalem, and how the people had gotten there. And we'll get to that a little bit later. So if we think of the divided kingdom, you have Israel, you have Judah. The Israel, the the ten tribes were taken away by the Assyrians, and now it was just uh, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin surrounding Jerusalem that were left. And they kind of Degraded in spirituality, they degraded in physical stature and their place in the world and God sends in the Neo-Babylonians to take Jerusalem. They take the city at first, they don't destroy the city. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sets up a puppet king, um, Zedekiah at the time, and then eventually they further degrade, further devolve into debauchery and God says enough is enough and sends in the Babylonians to take the city Um, and they destroy the city, they destroy the temple, um, and we can read all of those those accounts in Kings and Chronicles. <coughs> Lamentations tells exactly how gruesome and awful that time was um, for the Judeans. And so we'll see that specifically in chapter 4, the, the gruesomeness of it. But we'll see how Jeremiah and the people were feeling about it in the, the other chapters. So each of these chapters play a pivotal role. Each of these chapters could stand alone um, by themselves, like I stated earlier. We think of... Uh, We started in Romans. We think of Romans. Romans is an epistle. It's not divided into chapters. It's divided into paragraphs. But (coughs) mankind is divided into into chapters and verses for our ease of study. Lamentations, however, is divided into these chapters. Chapter 1 is is chapter 1. It's one poem. Chapter 2 is chapter 2. It's one poem. And they they stand alone and stand by themselves. Each has specific messages. Um, And we're going to take an application, however, um, with the, the quintuplet of poems. As a whole, chapter one. Let's get into chapter one. Chapter one is the destruction of Jerusalem from two viewpoints. From two viewpoints. The first view being the view of the prophet, the second view being the view of the city itself. And we'll see how that works here. <coughs> so let's see the view of the prophet. We'll say the prophet's Jeremiah. Reading verses one through five, this is Jeremiah viewing the destruction of Jerusalem. How lonely sits the city that was full of people! How like a widow is she, who is great among the nations! The princes among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn, because no one comes to set set feast. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries have become the master, her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. This is once again Jeremiah writing, viewing the city, looking on the city, telling these things. And we see a hint here of Jeremiah's understanding why, and that's what we're going to get into later on in this book, is why the people were going through these things, why the city was going through these things. Going on in chapter 1, we have a, a shift in both tone, you can see a shift in the nouns, a shift in the verbs, and because this is the view of the city talking about itself, in, in poetic terms, of course. Verse Starting in verse 12, th- as we read this, think about this as Jerusalem itself, Jerusalem herself, writing these things is it nothing to you all you who pass by behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which has been brought on me which the lord has afflicted them the day of his fierce anger from above he has sent fire into my bones and it has overpowered them he has spread a net for my feet and turned me back he has made me desolate and faint all the day the yoke of my transgressions was bound they are woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck he made my strength fall the Lord delivered me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand. The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my own men. The Lord trampled, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. We see the nouns change. We're talking eyes and me's now. This is the city itself writing from its own standpoint, my men have been crushed. God has sent a, an evil against me, talking about its people. Chapter 2, once again, a, a unique poem, separate from chapter 1, is citing really the anger of Jehovah. One verses, Starting in verses 1 of chapter 2, let's read this and, and note the, the anger of Jehovah. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion, this is once again the prophet speaking, with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel, and did not remember his footstool in, in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn of Israel and has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire devouring all around. Jeremiah is saying, and he's going to recognize and further state later on, that... God's anger has been aroused against Judah. Um, God's anger has been aroused against the people, against the city, and he knows, he realizes that it is through Babylon that his anger is um, being sent against his people. This is, He realizes this is not the exact same thing as what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, where God uh, directly took action there. God directly sent uh, fire from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. This is God acting... Through the powers that be, the powers of the world, principalities, coming in and dealing with uh, God's people. Verses 10 through 12, we'll continue on reading in chapter 2, citing the anger of Jehovah. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets in the city. They say to their mothers, where is grain and wine as they swoon like the wounded? In the streets of the city as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. There is a grief that exists within the people over the suffering (coughs) of Jerusalem. They are making recognitions amongst themselves. Uh, They are... This is talking of the anger and the wrath against the people. And it it recognizes that it was a a just destruction. It recognizes that the destruction was not unwarranted. Jeremiah speaking for the people recognizes that um, their time had come. That they had been away from God for too long. And that this is a just destruction. Chapter 3 follows a quasi-acrostic pattern. Um, that's why it's it's 66 verses. There are slight nuances in the order of the the alphabet, if you will. Um, and that's why I say it's a, it deviates a little bit from the acrostic pattern. And this is a prayer of Jeremiah for mercy. This is a prayer of Jeremiah for mercy. Starting in, we'll, we'll read a handful of verses from this chapter. And this is Jeremiah. Uh, it is his prayer recognizing um, the despair that they're in, recognizing that they need, um, that they do still have faith in God. He's going to recognize their condition of need as well. well. We'll see all of these as we read through. In verses 1 through 18, is most definitely a cry of despair. This is chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, is a cry of despair. Jeremiah the prophet, uh, writing for this despair of the people. Let's read a little bit of this despair, starting in verse 8. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He has been to me a bear lying in wait, like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. Imagine being on the, the target side, the receiving side of an arrow from God. He's not gonna miss. And if he's shooting at you, there's a reason he's shooting at you. Jeremiah realizes the despair of their situation. He can look on the city. He can look on the surrounding countryside. He can see the, the war machine of the Neo-Babylonians and um, closing in on them. And he realizes that he is in despair. This despair is whenever the people are despairing, this is, this is something that happens when, when bad things happen to us, gut reactions to complain. <clears throat> Gut reaction is to complain. Jeremiah here has not quite reached the point where he is um, going to talk about his faith and his hope for what's coming next. This is just complaining about the situation that's going on. This is complaining that um, their situation is, is desperate and that they are in dire straits. There's a sudden shift, however, in verses 19. Verses 19 through 39 is a sudden shift to a confession of faith. So they've done their grumbling. Jeremiah has done his grumbling and his complaining in verses 1 through um, 18. And starting in verse 19, we have this shift. We'll read a little bit of this. We'll read starting in verse 22. Notice the shift towards a confession of faith from a, a desperate attitude. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's our song that we just sang. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. It goes from an agonizing cry, it goes from self-loathing in a desperate attitude, a cry of despair, and it shifts to this confession of faith he realizes that great is God's faithfulness he realizes that though they are being uh, assaulted by God really what's happening though they are being assaulted by God through the Babylonians for their actions his compassions don't fail they also realize that his faithfulness does not fail Jeremiah states therefore I hope in him the Lord is good to those who wait for him and then in verse 40 Through 54, Jeremiah states a condition of need. A condition of needing God. Starting in verse 40, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. Jeremiah states his condition of need. He states, I'm not going to say that it's repentance. Not yet. It's not quite repentance, but it is a recognition of the need to repent which is an important step Jeremiah here is saying um, we have transgressed, we have rebelled you have not pardoned us because we see your justice, your wrath, your anger um, in our situation but he hasn't quite repented yet he hasn't quite repented for himself, for the people we're going to get to it eventually though starting in verse 55 this is the confidence that they have in God we've looked at their cry of despair He's made a confession of faith. He's made a stated his condition of need, and now he's going to state the confidence he has in God. Starting in verse 55, and this goes on through the end of the chapter. I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my sighing, from my cry for help. You drew near on the day I called on you, and said, "Do not fear." O Lord, you have pleaded the case for my soul. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen how I, how I am wronged. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their approach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. This is the confidence that Jeremiah has in God. He realizes that it was because God's wrath, because of his anger, that these things are happening to him in the first place. He states that he has absolute faith in God. He knows that their salvation can only come from God. He has a repentant heart. He hasn't quite repented yet, but he has a repentant heart in verses uh, starting in verse 40. And in 55, he states the confidence they have in God, that he knows that God is the only way that they will get out of this. And that's chapter 3. Separate from that, we have chapter 4. Chapter 4 is really a poetic or historical narrative of the siege of Jerusalem. This is where all the gruesome details of uh, that those years in 587 to 586 uh, really come out to light in, in poetic terms. This is the siege of Jerusalem. We can also read other. Um, atrocities in, in Kings and Chronicles. This is a rehearsing of the things that happened though, from the eyes of Jeremiah. Verse uh, Chapter 4 starting in verse 4. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who are brought up in scarlet embrace heap. This is the torment, this is the destruction, this is the torture. And it it reaches everyone. It doesn't matter if you are a child, if you are a nursing mother, if you were once in the upper echelons of the Jewish uh, society in Jerusalem, or if you were one of the lowest beggars. Everyone has been brought low. Everyone has been brought low to the point of embracing ash heaps. That's the only way that they can get relief, is embracing ash heaps. There is most certainly no food. There is a famine on the land. They are besieged. No one is getting in or out. Um, And we can know from historical context that the only way that they got water in Jerusalem was from wells that were dug a a long time ago that reached up into the city. While by this point in time, the Babylonians had already gotten those wells and were using the water for for themselves. So there's no water, there's no food. Everyone has been brought to the lowest point. They are in utter desolation. Um, When the Babylonians would get their hands on any of the Jews in Jerusalem, most certainly torture was taking place. Um, it would have been, we'll read later on, it would have been better to die fighting against the Babylonians than to die in the siege of Jerusalem. Starting in verse, we'll read a couple more verses um, through this chapter just to get a, 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 pu- a few uh, more glimpses into this. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. There's that famine. Verse 14 states, they wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood, so that no one would touch their garments. Verse 17, still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help and our watching. We watched for a nation that could not save us. The people at this time had, um, I told Jacqueline I wasn't going to get into too many uh, Bronze Age politics, but we'll do it a little bit. Um, the people at this time had tried to make deals with all sorts of nations. They shouldn't have realized through Israel's folly, Israel's already taken away at this time, Israel made deals with the Assyrians, they made deals with Egypt, and none of those nations came to help them. And Assyria eventually double-crossed them and took them away in captivity. So Judah should have realized this fact and should have, hindsight's always twenty-twenty, turned to God and said... God, you be our leader again. We'll cast off all the kings, cast off all the nations. We need you to be our leader because we saw what happened to our brethren in the north. That didn't happen. They ended up making deals with Cyprus, making deals with Lebanon. They ended up making deals with um, Egypt. They So Babylon came in, set up the puppet king of Zedekiah. Judah wanted to be free from that, tried to make a deal with Egypt. And... Babylon found out about that, was not happy, and so they sent in a full military force, and this is where they're at now. We've got Lamentations chapter 4. So the deals that they made did not work for themselves. They were looking for other nations to come and help them, and it it could not help them. They were watching vainly for a nation that could not save them. They tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near, our days were over, for our end had come. This most certainly was not uh, this land that was flowing with milk and honey anymore. It was, it was already desolate at this point. Um, which brings us to chapter 5. Chapter 5, once again, a unique poem, separate from the rest, but we can take them as their totality. Chapter 5 is a prayer for restoration. This is a prayer of Jeremiah asking for restoration. He is describing the people's lamentable state. We think of the title of the book, Lamentations. Uh, the Jewish title for it—they named things by the first letter and or the first word. It was how. <coughs> the first. Uh, let me find the first verse of Lamentations, because I I think that's extremely fitting. Let me read the first verse here. How lonely sits the city. So the Jewish title for this book would not have been Lamentations exactly. It would have just been how. How, question mark. How had they gotten to this point? How was it that God had brought them here? How were they going through these trials and tribulations? Well, Jeremiah states that it was because of their sin, it was because of their folly, their debauchery, their turning away from God that they had gotten there. Chapter 5 is a prayer for restoration. He is recognizing that it was because of their sins that they were destroyed. Verses 1 through 6 says, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink, and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Post-siege, there was just a small remnant that that remained. And by this time, the land had been kind of scattered up between the the powers of the time. The people who had once had a land flowing with milk and honey, all of their needs were met, every military victory they came upon, uh, they won if they followed God's commands. All they had to do was walk out and they could pick off grapes from the vine. Well, look at where they're at now. They have to pay other nations for their wood, They have to pay other nations for the water that they drink. They are orphans in their own land. And verses 13 and 14 states, Young men ground at the millstones, boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. Jeremiah is writing here about a a wanting to get back to their former state. He wants the people to realized their folly, realized their sin, and he wants them to get back to their former state. He wants to be in this this bliss of milk and honey that they had at one point in time. So taking all these chapters, how can we make application to us today? Lamentations is a, a unique book, five unique chapters, each telling a separate tale of the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. How do we make applications to us today? I think there's a handful. We can take... How do we deal with grief and sorrow? We can turn to God That's one application. Uh, We can learn how to talk to God. There are numerous prayers within this. What should our mindset be when we talk to God? What words should we choose when we talk to God? We can also use it as a historical narrative to further develop what we know of the siege of Jerusalem. But I want to take a big picture application. We know that chapter 1 talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapter 2 was the anger of Jehovah on his people. Chapter 3 is a prayer of Jeremiah, and we separated that into separate parts. 4 is the siege of Jerusalem, and 5 is a prayer for restoration. There are four words that I want us to take from Lamentations. And those four words are grief, pause, hope, and prayer. I think these are easy to see in the, in the context of lamentations. Grief, recognizing where they were at. They were sorry that they were at that state. Cause, it's, a, it's all fine and good to be sorry for where you're at, but if the child doesn't recognize why they're sorry that they're about to get in trouble, then it doesn't mean good. They have to be sorry that they're in that state. They have to recognize that they are low and pitiable, but they have to realize the cause. The cause for the, the uh, Judeans at this time was sin. They recognized that they were separate from God. Hope, you have to recognize God himself. You have to recognize that it was through the Messiah that your salvation was coming. It wasn't coming through nations. It wasn't even coming in the foreseeable future. Jerusalem was never going to be restored to its former state. But it was through their hope rested in a Messiah that would eventually come. and We'll talk about that Messiah later on in just a moment. And prayer, there's a a prayer of repentance that that Jeremiah tells, asking to be in a former state with God, asking to be back conjoined with God rather than being separate. Every child of God has made these lessons applicable to themselves at one point in time. They've They've been sorry for where they're at. They recognize the cause for why they were separated from God. They had a hope of salvation, and there was a prayer of repentance that was made. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at this grief just a little closer. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 9. Now I re- rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. That's exactly what we were talking about there. Paul rejoiced, not that they were sorry. He rejoiced, not that they were uh, full of grief, but that their grief led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us for nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. This is that exact grief that Jeremiah went through in Lamentations. And Jeremiah was not just sorry that the Babylonians were coming and that his city that he'd grown up in was going to be ransacked and destroyed, the temple was going to be destroyed, that he'd worshipped at. He's not just sorry that that's going to take place. He was sorry that he had that the people had forsaken God. He was sorry that the people had left God. And that sorrow, we read, produces repentance. The Corinthians are the same way. We've been studying in our, our Bible classes, 1 and 2 Corinthians. The, we read in 2 Corinthians, the Corinthians were so sorry that they kind of, they maybe went a little too far with some of the actions that they, that they had done in getting back right with God. But they were most certainly sorrowful from their actions that Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians. Let's think about the cause. This cause is most definitely tied with this grief. God is constantly or was constantly reminding the Jewish people of his relationship with them, of why he was doing things. We think of the cycles of prophets, the cycles of judges that happened. Israel almost always had some kind of an oracle from God, whether that was a judge at the time, whether it was the high priest that was telling them what they were doing wrong. They constantly had this oracle. If we make an application to ourselves, we constantly have an oracle from God as well. Whenever we feel that we are uh, sorrowful, whenever we feel that we are uh, full of grief, grief grief-ridden, maybe it's time to reflect on that. See, why are we full of grief? Why are we full of sorrow? What is the cause of our grief and sorrow? And if it's from a separation from God, we can know that we are separate from God because we have the Word as our oracle. If someone asks us today, do you think you're going to heaven? I of the belief, I think you can give, a, give an answer with that. I think you can say, yes, I am going to heaven. If you have studied the word, if you have compared your life to the template, to the rubric that is given to us, I think it would be a, a terrible life to walk this earth not knowing if we are going to heaven. I think that would that'd be, that'd be very sad, to not know that we are going to heaven. We are doing all these things and at the end of the day. If we can't say, yes, I am good. We might need to rethink some of the things that we're doing to make sure that we can be the best that we can be so that we can say, have that confidence in God. Speaking of confidence in God, that brings us to hope. And may we thank God every day for the hope that we have. Israel was running out of a physical salvation. They'd kind of reached the end of their ropes. They'd reached the end of their ropes for physical salvation. They knew their destruction was at hand. But they had one last hope that they were holding on to, and that was the hopelessness of a Messiah, which is the exact same as our hope. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to come as their hope, and we are looking for our Messiah to return as our hope. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 15, we'll begin to read... This states, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the, His glory, of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all the principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fulfills all in all. We have this hope that we can be restored through Christ Jesus. This hope exists within the promises of God. This hope can be ours. This is the same hope that, that Jeremiah stated in Lamentations. They had a hope that... They knew their physical salvation was, was done. That was God. They had no hope in that. But their hope existed in something greater. They knew that a Messiah would come. And like I said earlier, that is the same hope that we have. We're, it doesn't matter. Look at uh, verse 21. This hope is far above all principalities and powers. That is far above any power of Babylon that could come again today. If Babylon was to rise up and siege us again today, our hope is so much greater than that. Colossians chapter 1 also states a similar principle. Colossians chapter 1. We'll read a handful of verses in that chapter. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Verse 23 in this same chapter states, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Once again, talking of that hope that, is, that we can have in Christ Jesus, we have a hope that should be laid up in heaven, 2 Peter chapter 3 also talks of this hope. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance we can be hopeful that the Lord does not have spiritual destruction laid up for us physical destruction that might be in our our, our cards but spiritual destruction as long as we are following our our pattern as long as we are following our rubric and our template spiritual destruction is out of the question we can always have that hope and our prayer of repentance this is not just a single time prayer we pray this prayer one time this is not what we're talking about Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. This prayer of repentance here is what is stated in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This confession of sins is a realization that you are separate from God, um, and it comes through some of the steps, and we'll put these steps to get together in just a second. This allowed for the people to come back and eventually rebuild Judah. Um, this prayer of repentance was one that Daniel prayed every day. We read that while the people were taken away, Daniel was constantly praying, constantly facing Jerusalem, praying to God that they could come back, and it was eventually granted to them to come back and at least begin to rebuild and set up the scenes for uh, our Lord and Savior to be um, to be crucified in that same land. But that's a prayer of repentance. It is not a one-time prayer like I stated. It is a constant checking of yourself to make sure that you are in a right relationship with God. And if you are not, with prayer is actions. I can pray all day for money. <coughs> Money's not going to fall in my lap. I can go out and get a job very easily. though. There's actions often that are tied to prayer, um, especially acts of Repentance. I can pray for repentance, but if I'm still doing the things that I'm repenting of, well, my prayer of repentance doesn't do me any good. My my state is no longer no longer correct. So, as we think of lamentations, as we kind of wrap to a close with this, we can make applications to ourselves. I think we can make applications to others as well. So, applications to ourselves. We have these stages, as we saw in lamentations, of returning to God. There is a period of grief, a period of sorrow, and that is where you are sorrowful for what is happening in your life, for the way people are treating you, or whatever it is that you are sorrowful for. The second step would be recognizing the cause of that sorrow, the cause of that separation from God, recognition that you are away from God, whether that is through your own personal study or someone telling you that you are separated from God. The next step being a hope that we have in Christ, a hope that we have in God for the ability to return back to Him. But hope and faith do us no good without actions tied to that. We talked about that um, on Wednesday. Hope and faith without actions do us no good. And so there has to be actions tied with that hope, and that is the actions of repentance. So while we're going through our life, I think we should always kind of be working through this flowchart. Are we sorrowful? Are we full of grief? If we are... Move down to your next step. Why? Because there's a cause for us to be sorrowful. We are upset. We are full of grief that we are separate from God. The next step in that would be recognizing the hope that we have. And the next step after that is a prayer of repentance. This also has application to others as well. That was for ourselves. But to others, this is the plan of salvation. This is how we bring others to Christ. So if we're talking to other people... um, Very rarely, and it works sometimes, but very rarely have I seen this work. Um, I would go on the street corner and very loudly proclaim that people walking by are going to hell. Very rarely does that um, entreat people to walk up to me and say, Yes, I think I am going to hell. Let's talk about that. Um, More often what is happening is if you're studying with someone and you're trying to bring them to Christ, you have to instill in them... You have to instill in them a a knowledge of the separation they have from God. It doesn't work just by saying, this is the state that you're in. I think you're going to hell having a day. It works in having a relationship with them, caring for their soul enough to say, I'm worried about you. I'm concerned about you. Let's talk about this. And when they realize they're serious, maybe they will begin to also share that same grief and sorrow for their soul that you share for their soul. There's always a dichotomy with God. Um, With grief and sorrow comes hope and a prayer of repentance. So the next step in that would be once you've instilled a a sorrowful, a griefful mind in them, show them the cause. Well, this is why you feel this way. This is um, because you are separate from God. These are the sins in your life that you need to repent of, just as all of us have repented of sins. Share with them the hope that exists with God. Share with them the hope that exists in Jesus Christ, that they can be Uh, baptized for the remission of their sins, that they can walk anew, put off the old man of sin and perdition, and they can walk anew in Christ. And then finally, them wanting to do that is not the end of the line. They have to have a prayer of repentance. And like I said, that is not a one-time prayer. That is prayer tied with action for repentance. That is the confession of faith. That is the uh, belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. That is immersion in baptism. These are the conversations we can be having with people. But it has to start with a recognition of a separation from God. So as we close, I want us to always think of the dichotomy of God. In Lamentations we saw that there was immense destruction, turmoil, grief, um, desolation in Jerusalem. But there was a hope that something better existed. In Lamentations we read that even the city itself, Jeremiah the prophet, realized that they were apart from God, but the dichotomy, they could get back to God through hope. There's turmoil and peace, there's grief and hope, there's severity, and there's goodness, as we've read in Romans uh, at the beginning of our lesson. So as we conclude, I would like us to always, throughout our own lives and in our conversations with others, think through that progression, that flow chart that we see in Lamentations. Before I started studying, I didn't really think Lamentations had much application to us besides just a book that means sadness, and you can read it when you're sad, or whatever. You can read it if you want the historical narrative of the siege of Jerusalem. But the fall of the people and their mindset is the exact mindset that we need to get people to whenever we're bringing them to Christ. And that is getting them to recognize, and getting ourselves to recognize if we need to, our separation from God. Grief cause, hope, and prayer. There's our flowchart that we can be working through in our lives. There's our flowchart that we can tell to others as we bring them to Christ. If there's anyone in this audience tonight, or this morning, excuse me, that is in need of rendering obedience to the gospel of Christ, or if you have fallen away, you're checking yourself on that flowchart, and you realize that I'm not in the right spot, I might need to have that prayer of repentance, I might need to have a study on hope that we have, um, we ask that you would come forward while we stand and while we sing the selected.